Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. The Contrarian Investor Podcast wants to find the best and give them a voice. To help in our search, we use Covey to find and track the best contrarians. Our guests' stock picks are available in real time on the website covey.io slash contrarian. Now, these portfolios are available for anyone to view, track, and share. And on top of that, we encourage our listeners to join our community by building virtual portfolios of stocks and ETFs to compete and rise to the top. At the end of the year, we'll interview the top performing analyst on Covey, right here on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. That means you or any great contrarians you know can rise to the top based on merit and get a voice. Again, the website, covey.io slash contrarian. Barry Knapp of Ironsides Macroeconomics joining us from Vail, Colorado. Uh, thank you so much for rejoining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Great to have you here. And you are the traditional curtain raiser or have become that for the outlook for the calendar year. And we are now one trading day into 2023. The end of 2022 wasn't great. There's a whole bunch of economic concerns kind of clouding the picture here. So very curious to get your views here on what exactly you expect will transpire in the economy and markets in 2023. The first question is recession, yes or no, painful, how much, and when? So within the um, the spirit of the title of the podcast, I figured I'd, I'd, I'd try and give my comments within the context of what I'm hearing generally from the street, from other strategists and investors. I'll begin when you ask the question about recession with this idea that it's phrased and responded to far too generically as if all recessions are similar. And quite frankly, the last four, if we include the pandemic, um, at least initially were significant credit contractions, um, even balance sheet recessions. The 1991 recession was... Um, 
a function of the commercial real estate market collapsing, changes in tax laws, tighter monetary policy, and commercial real estate collapsed. In 2000, as we know, that was the tech bubble bursting, and it wasn't all equity. A lot of it was financed through banks to build out the internet infrastructure, and um, that was in weak hands like WorldCom and Global Crossing. And again, that became a credit issue. There were problems in the banking system that lingered all the way into 2002. And then, of course, we know 2008, 2009, when my Lehman Brothers went down, was surely a credit contraction. But the reason I bring all this up is when you contrast it with the recession in 1970, the very deep recession in 73, 74, uh, 1980 recession or 81, 82, when I began studying economics, those occurred during inflationary periods. And the key point of differentiation between those recessions and the ones that followed, including the pandemic recession, was that nominal GDP did not contract during those recessions. It continued to rise. Hmm. Earnings, of course, are nominal. And so the earnings contractions, even in that deep 73, 75, and 81, 82, very deep Volcker recession, were only 13% declines in S&P 500 earnings. The other two were, were less than that. And uh, another key point of difference was the 60s was a period of very uh, strong investment, particularly in physical structures. Investment grew, non-residential fixed investment grew at 10% for the entire decade. And so when that recessionary contraction hit, investment came down and that that pressured uh, earnings and corporate results as well, left companies with a lot of excess fixed asset investment. None of that's the case today. In fact, the numbers that came out yesterday for construction spending show uh, investments now surging even as recession looms because we underinvested in our capital stock for two decades as we outsourced everything. So we're in a very, very different backdrop as a consequence of this likelihood that nominal GDP will not contract, even if we do have something that the NBER ends up qualifying or characterizing as a recession, I would characterize or, or estimate that earnings downside is limited to 5% or so, um, which is about how much it went down in 1980. And that's a very differentiated, differentiated point of view. I don't, um, I don't actually think earnings are going to go down next year. I think they're actually going to go up wow. because we've already weathered the marginal cost, marginal revenue, you know, input output storm. Well, that's a contrarian view right there. You should have led with that. I mean, I understand you have to do the-, the it, it is for the sure. And um, one of the ways to think about that, the pressure is, so we went through what I would describe as the largest inventory cycle since 1949. In the aftermath of World War II, we did have a huge inventory restocking and then destocking cycle in what I'll call the Truman recession when he was reelected with a- campaign platform even further to the left of Roosevelt's. It was the fair deal. Uh, anyway, you had a collapse in business confidence. You had a big inventory contraction, drop in investment. That was the weakest investment we'd ever had um, post-World War II recessions. But anyway, not to belabor that one, we had this incredible inventory drawdown during the COVID recession as a percent of GDP. We all know why that happened. And then we had an absolute surge in inventories 
in the first part of 2022. The import numbers in March were the biggest ones I could find since the 60s. That then led to Walmart and Target having truckloads of excess inventory in their parking lots. And at the same time, we were having this adjustment from goods to services spending. So I've trended spending for goods and services and overall consumption back to mid 2014, which is when the deleveraging associated with um, the global financial crisis and the how excessive household debt really ran its course and consumption went from averaging one eight in the first five years of the recovery to 3% for the next five, which is close to a post-World War II average. So if you trend from there, what you find is that goods consumption now is back on the trend line. And it looks like that adjustment is complete. The inventory investment as a percent of GDP is back on its longer term trend line. And uh, services spending is still some $240 billion above trend line. I wouldn't assume that's immediately coming back to trend line because government transfers as a percent of GDP are at all time highs and are not coming in this year. We've seen this omnibus spending bill is not going to ease back on that. So that's a key part of my thesis, too, is that consumption is not about to uh, fall off a cliff because consumers run through their savings. The transfer payments are so big that it's likely to continue apace. So if you if you put all those things together and then you look at prices paid and prices received from the various Fed, regional Fed manufacturing surveys, they both were surging at this time a year ago, but the spread was quite wide. So that wide spread, meaning prices paid were much higher than prices received, put pressure on margins. And that was evident in some sectors, although that's not the whole story, because if nominal revenue growth is up, fixed costs are fixed. So you have operating leverage. And if you look at the industrial sector in particular, you can see how that whole process played out. And over the last couple of months, industrial sector margins have been stable and look like they may very well turn up because that spread between prices paid and prices received has collapsed to the lowest level since early 2016 after oil prices collapsed. China had a heavy industry hard landing and then margins took off in 2016 and into 2017. So to me, it actually sets up where the storm for goods producers in particular has already passed. But the whole margin story isn't really as homogeneous as strategists would like you to believe. Banks had some hits to margin last year because of changes in accounting standards and the fact that their loan growth surged. So they actually took their cash holdings down. They took their um, securities holdings down and loan growth went up. So net interest margins are starting to really expand. Net interest income is expanding. So yes, the banks have to take reserves, which made it look like there's pressure on their margins, but the credit is clean and it's likely bank results will be much better than expected. Tech margins will probably continue to be under pressure, but economically sensitive cyclicals, margins are probably gonna go up this year unless there is this just collapse in aggregate demand that some are looking for because the Fed is tightened. But I don't see any evidence of it in part, as I said, because of transfer payments. You know, if we step back just for a little bit and we think, okay, monetary policy works through asset prices. So it primarily creates asset inflation. 
consumer price inflation is a second order effect. Even within housing, there's two effects, right? There's the asset price of your house, and then there's the uh, rent service costs. So fiscal spending works directly through consumer prices, and there's no slowing of the fiscal <laughs> impulse right here. So thinking that somehow the Fed is causing this big collapse in in demand and really uh, is the reason why inflation is starting to slow is spurious in mm. my view. And we can come back and talk about the inflation outlook a little bit too. But you know, when, when, you, when you realize that the fiscal impulse is still positive, and this is what happened, actually did happen in the 70s. It was not the Fed stop start. It was actually huh. a fiscal impulse. So okay. I've gone on a, a bit. Yeah, that's uh, a lot for us to unpack there. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. One of the things you didn't mention, and which is kind of underlying all this strength, I'm, I'm assuming, is the labor market in the U.S., which, as you know, is very healthy. And can that continue in the face of higher interest rates and, and businesses having to, you know, the cost of borrowing increase in, increasing and, and things like that? Is, is that not a, not a concern? Well, first of all, I don't think that the labor market, I think the demand for the labor for labor has has weakened considerably through the course of the year. And okay. um, I don't attribute that to Fed policy so much. I attribute it to this rebalancing process that's taken place. Um, if you but the, hold look, on, the, the, all the employment figures are positive, though. Like if you look at the non farms and, and the, the initial claims and, and things like that. Uh, so no, I'll, I'll disagree with what you said. Okay. And the reason I, I will is the establishment survey has been strong, no doubt. But the establishment survey, I, I think, is um, overstated. And there's a couple of reasons to think that. One is the Philadelphia Fed did some analysis using state-level data to estimate what they think the benchmark revision will be to the establishment survey and they came up with a million less jobs in the second quarter of last year if there was a million less jobs in the second quarter there was some about less in the third quarter so part of the problem is a big uh, component of the establishment survey is the birth death model that estimates small business creation and there has been it's one of the curious things about the pandemic is that the, the government started releasing this new um, weekly report of employee identification number applications as a proxy for new business creation. And it's double what it was pre-pandemic. But we don't know how many of those businesses are going under. Hmm. And so that's what's estimated. And that could be the source of, of um, the reason why job creation isn't as strong as the establishment survey believes. Now, the household survey has been much, much weaker. Even in the last two months, there's a million job differential between the establishment and the household survey. And the household survey, it's not perfect. They're calling people up, but it's actually consistent with what we're hearing from the conference board with their labor differential when they ask people, are jobs plentiful or are jobs hard to get? The jobs plentiful measure has come down some 10% or so from peak. Also, I look carefully at flows in and out of the labor market. Those swamp the net change. So um, flows from employed to out of the labor force 
surged over the last couple of months, from employed to unemployed surged over the last couple of months. And then you mentioned jobless claims, that initial claims numbers are likely distorted by problems with seasonal adjustment factors. When you have big macroeconomic events like we had, those adjustment factors get thrown off. The government changed them in 2021 to try and account for things like, well, people really weren't going back to school because in September, that's the historic that's the lowest point for unseasonally adjusted claims. The highest point for seasonally adjusted claims is right now when they lay off seasonal workers. Anyway, that number, those numbers look a little distorted, but the continuing claims numbers have gone up from 1.35 million in September to 1.71 million during the establishment survey week in December. So you've had a pretty good, pretty good rise there. So, you know, you put all those things together and you think, Okay, demand is is softened a fair bit, and um, I have uh, measures of labor market slack. I have eighteen different measures I put into an index based upon a speech that former Fed Chairman Yellen gave, and then Powell gave a similar one, and they pointed all these little various indicators that peaked in March. Uh, Non-supervisory average hourly earnings peaked in March. That's loosened a lot back to where we were pre-pandemic. And I think we just have this big adjustment going on. And there's been some significant changes in the structure of the labor market, too. For example, leisure and hospitality employment is well below where it was pre-pandemic. But yet, if you look at aggregate sales for restaurants listed in the S&P 500, they're 20 percent above. So guess what they did? They substituted capital for labor, made you order on an iPad. Right. So um, margins are up. Um, So there has been some some changes, some adjustment. I think that's a lot what last year was about. I think the aggregate demand is softened. And importantly, I think the Fed tolerance for weakness in the labor market is a lot less than is perceived. Yeah. Um, I, I've sort of said this a couple of times, including on CNBC, that a 4% unemployment rate and uh, the inclusive employment members of the Federal Reserve, the FOMC will come storming back, right? Huh. So, Even at 4% because it's like 3.7 now, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And uh, and 4% is actually consistent with where that labor differential from the conference board survey is. And there's similar surveys, right? So it, it, it's not going to surprise me when we get to that. We are going to get the benchmark revision to the household part of the survey on Friday. So that should be interesting. But anyway, I think labor demand is has softened. I don't think, you know, we're headed for this huge move in the unemployment rate, nor do I think it's necessary. We didn't, this wasn't caused by a wage price spiral. And the Fed can't really fix this as long as those government transfer payments continue at the level that they're at, right? Hmm. I mean, how much does the jolts factor into your uh, prognosis at all into your models? In ways that most people don't use it. So, yeah, I, I look at the openings versus, you know, the, the vacancies, so openings versus uh, employment measures that um, Waller gave a speech about. It's the so-called beverage curve and this idea that we could reduce those job openings um, and still not raise the unemployment rate. And he's not far off, um, although when you look through where the job openings are, there's areas like healthcare. Healthcare had 500,000 excess jobs pre-pandemic. Now they have more than a million. And those jobs aren't getting filled. They're, they're just a lot of home healthcare kind of jobs. And that's just going to remain the way it is, uh, I suspect. Um, 
Manufacturing openings surged. Those are coming down. We could talk. There was a that the, the, I talked earlier about this inventory cycle. For me, that's why we had we're having a global manufacturing recession. But I think it's just about run its course. Mm -hmm. And ISM manufacturing will turn up sometime in the first quarter. The world looks like it's bottoming around a 46, 47. It's unlikely we have a deep manufacturing recession. We had one in early in the early uh, in 2018, 2019 during the trade war and mm -hmm. having another deep one seems unlikely. But anyway, um, you know, when you look through where those openings are, yeah, there's some scope for those to come down, but there's other stuff that's kind of structural, as mm -hmm. I said, like healthcare, for example. Yeah. Um, but where I really like the, the jolts data is looking at the dynamism of the labor market, the okay. turnover or churn of the labor market. So it's hirings plus separations as a percent of the workforce that actually can drive real wage growth or sustainable wage growth over time, right? If people go, if we have a dynamic labor force, which we didn't through much of the early 2010s in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, if we have a labor force where people can go get jobs because they can work remotely or whatever, ultimately they're going to be more productive. And productivity, I think, is part of the missing story most people assume because they look at GDP numbers, which I think are terrible, much prefer gross domestic income data. I think productivity is actually going to improve, hmm. not deteriorate. And it has been improving. It's just masked by this massive inventory cycle that caused a big negative contribution from uh, net exports and then a negative contribution from inventories. And so, in fact, productivity is going up, not down because of this turnover dynamic dynamism in the labor force. Speaking of that, what, on the last thing on the, on the jolts, do you do look at the quits levels? Because this is something that Jay Powell has cited in his, uh, in his, uh, I do. Well, that's part of the separation story. Yeah. So when you, when you think about separations, you could sort of, and I, I've, I've done this analysis too, and looked at uh, good turnover versus bad yeah. turnover, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. if you have separations because people are getting laid off, it's not quite as, good of news is because people are quitting now. Exactly. Listen, I, I think that's one of the things that the Fed gets wrong, though, is they say, OK, well, quits are going up. That's bad, right? Because right. it drives wages up. No, it, that's wrong, actually, because ultimately that will lead to productivity over time. So if you another way to think about this is if you look at the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, they have a couple of really good measures in there. They have job switchers versus job stayers. So mm -hmm. that's sort of a measure of quits and are people leaving because they're going to get another job. And what's that? What's the reward to that? If that spread goes up, which it's at historically high levels or just off the historically highest levels since that series began in the late 90s. Well, sure, that drives wages up in the short run, but it's also likely to drive productivity up over time. They also give you income by quartiles. And so the bottom quartile wages are going up by relative to the, the top wage quartile by the highest percentage again since that series began. That probably doesn't carry positive productivity with it, right? If you're, you know, if you're going out and, and you're just hiring anyone because you need bodies, you're probably driving productivity down. So yeah. if wages are going up because of scarcity uh, and, and lack of supply, 
then that will probably be productivity negative. But if people are, if the labor force is dynamic, people are quitting and going to get jobs they really want, that will probably carry a positive productivity dividend. And I say probably, but we actually did see this after the end of extended unemployment benefits at the beginning of 2014, when we had the five years into the recovery, we had the most dynamic, biggest increases in labor, uh, you know, demand and and supply. We had a huge increase in the size of the labor force. The low end got pulled up. Everything happened and real wage growth went up. Right. It didn't really push through inflation. Uh, It didn't matter for consumer price inflation, but wage growth went up and productivity went up, too. So that that to me is, is the model there. Very interesting. Uh, let's go back to the demand side, though, before we got sidetracked by the labor market. The demand, yeah, and uh, you, so you think this can hold up? Uh, because we just had a story yesterday. Apple is cutting production. They say due to demand. Who knows? But is is that not a concern? Granted, that's just one company in the whole scheme of things. But consumption of iPod iPhones is is obviously a, a big thing. One would think. Well, yes, of course, um, that's what last year was all about. And I, I think we're we're coming somewhat towards the end of that process, the rebalancing of growth uh, or goods versus services, right? And that's why I said goods look like they're back to the trend line. Um, you know, but, but again, it's, it's not a necessarily homogeneous story. Um, did people over binge on phones and that sort of thing? Yeah, they probably could very well have. That's um, that's likely. Um, I'm I've been um, negative on tax since the summer of August of 2021, uh, 2021, and I continue to be negative on uh, on tech. Um, okay. And so we could talk about that too, but um, yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. 
This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Tech keeps falling apart. I mean, what was the NASDAQ down last year? 30%? You know, if that if you have this wealth destruction going on, and we haven't even talked about the crypto industry yet, um, which we can maybe touch on, but but all those all that wealth destruction, won't that have an effect economically? Oh, that, that's a great question, actually, because I've written a fair bit about um, wealth effects. So this 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 fascinates me um, in as much as people think that, you know, Powell and the FOMC committees really focused on where the stock market is. So so here's the math, right? Uh, household net worth. And, and by the way, this is important within the context of the broader story of what happened in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So financial crisis, household net worth in the U.S. was $71 trillion roughly before the financial crisis began at peak. It dropped to $59 trillion. So 15, 16% hit. It didn't recover until the third quarter of 2012. House prices didn't recover until 2018, their prior peak. Stock prices into 2013. So they had this massive hit when we talked about a Fed put in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. There was a Fed put to some extent in as much as they needed to protect household balance sheets because household debt was at all-time highs, financial obligations ratios, meaning the percent of disposable income that went to uh, interest payments were at all-time highs, and balance sheets had gotten seriously impaired. Well, compare and contrast to what happened during the global, uh, during the uh, pandemic. We went from 117 down to 110 in the first quarter of, of 2020, and then we're above it by the end of the second quarter, then we went to 150 trillion. We've taken a seven trillion dollar hit, so we're still 22 percent above where we were pre-pandemic. So I argued, you know, the, this time a year ago that their Fed put was strike was a lot lower than it had been. Right? They had no need to try and protect household balance sheets. The other side of it, this coin, though, is this is the least efficacious, to use a Fed word, way to try and slow growth. Because if you if you do the math based upon things like the landmark Case Shiller study on uh, wealth effects, it's three to four percent of the change in wealth over a two year time period. So seven trillion times three or four divide by two divide by nominal GDP is 50 basis points of nominal GDP per year. That's it. So that's that's what the decline in the stock market did to consumption was probably accounted for a 50 basis point off nominal GDP hit this year and next. It's just not okay. that big a deal when okay. nominal GDP is growing at 8%. So Okay, okay. But I mean, if that happens and if the whole VC thing dries up, maybe 2000 is a good comparison for this because that was when we saw a similar implosion in tech and, and what that did to the labor market. Have you studied that and, and looked at that? And seeing how that um, works? I, not so much the labor market, because 
I think that would be an exercise in futility. There's just not yeah, that, sure. that much employment related to it. But what it does for the deficit is a big deal. And okay. that's an interesting story where I'm not going to sound quite as sanguine as I've just sounded on the aggregate economy because um, there's a, there's an, so the, the story is that when, well, let me just step back a little bit. There's an, an empirical observation known as Hauser's Law. And all Hauser's Law says is that um, regardless of the structure of the tax system, you have a 90% top marginal rate or a 28% top marginal rate, the government collects 175 to 18.5% of GDP in tax receipts. There's two years where we got close to 20. 2000, we actually got 20% of GDP. Hmm. And last year, we got 198 nice. Those are the biggest prints. Well, in 2001, it dropped by 1.1%. The CBO projects that it's going to drop by a percent this year. Spending, however, is in those days was only 17% of GDP. We were actually running surpluses. Well, right, right now, uh, spending is 23.8% of GDP and not headed down mm. based upon the deal that McConnell just cut with the Democrats and the omnibus spending bill for 9% or 10% increase in defense spending. Mm. And um, it's six, but it's really not six because there's another 40 tossed on more like 8% discretionary spending. Plus, we know that all the mandatory spending stuff is accelerating because of the big Social Security cost of living adjustments and so on and so forth. Though we're going to have a much bigger than likely expected deficit next year. And that's really where the implosion in wealth is going to affect things. So you think what what asset will struggle as a consequence of that? Stocks or bonds? Yeah, probably treasuries. right? Yeah. Because we're going to have to weather all that supply with much weaker foreign demand than we had in those days, too. So. Yeah, but I mean, the, the deficit has been growing since, for what, 50 years? 60, how long? Forever? Um, so what's another couple trillion among friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, it's it's going to be, there's, they're not going to be friends in Congress, I can tell you that. Because uh -huh. if you think to what happened in 2011, you know, we're setting up for something similar this go around in as much as we are... Presumably, we'll get a Speaker of the House sometime soon, and, and um, this is going to be an unbelievably strong point for the Republican Party to fight the Democrats on. And they, although they cut a deal on the on the spending for this year, they didn't cut a deal on the um, debt ceiling. And so there will be a battle coming because it's a strong selling point for the Republicans that all the spending is the real cause of, of inflation. And, um, you know, I've illustrated how that could be so earlier sure. by talking about all these transfer payments being at all time highs. By the way, when you look at those transfer payments over time, the periods when they were stable, like under Reagan or under Clinton, is when inflation was low and stable. And when it was rising is when inflation started to, to go up. And believe it or not, it was actually stable for most of the Obama era after that big budget fight in 2011. So yeah. there's a budget battle coming. and. Um, that's going to be an issue for financing of, of debt and deficit. Okay, when is that happening? That'll get started, presumably in that first quarter, second quarter. Oh. Um, I, 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 my understanding last I saw is that the Treasury can probably keep, they won't run through their extraordinary measures till probably about mid-year or so.
Um, mm -hmm. And that's when we'll have a real. Okay, so that's one of the things that you're that you're watching as as far as a potential hiccup, but you don't see the demand picture, the consumer and employment and all that really presenting a concern quite yet. Correct. If we just step back in the economy and say, all right, well, let's look at the big components to GDP. And as much as I still say I don't really like the GDP figure I pr mm. produce, prefer gross domestic income. But that notwithstanding, consumption is likely to remain fairly robust. Household balance sheets are the antithesis of what they were after the global financial crisis. We talked about household net worth. Sure, it's taken a little bit of a hit, but it's 22% above where it was pre-pandemic. Financial obligations ratios, the cash flow that goes to service debt is at the lowest level since the Fed started measuring it in 1980. Um, so household balance sheets are in great shape. Transfer payments are strong, um, unless the labor market. I've, I've described demand as weakening for labor, but we know there's excess demand over supply. So mm -hmm. it's unlikely you get a big collapse as a consequence of the labor market falling uh, completely apart. Mm -hmm. um, We've gone through the big inventory destocking cycle. Manufacturing has likely run its course. Housing is another question. Um, I think it's got further to run, and we could talk about that because I've done some work I think is pretty unique on that. But so, that, yeah. that, that yeah, would you don't think housing's, uh, I mean, it's been dropping. Well, let, yeah. let me just table that for a second and finish yeah. my broad summary, and then we'll okay. come back to housing. Um, <clears throat> and then we have capital investment. And I, I tangentially mentioned earlier how capital investment is surging on physical plant and structures. Bottom up S&P 500 CapEx keeps going up. Um, it was already 40% above uh, stock buybacks as much as people say, you know, companies are just buying back stock, not investing. That wasn't true pre-pandemic. It's not true now, but CapEx looks really strong. And there's a big broad case to rebuild our manufacturing base to rebuild our yeah. capital stock. And uh, and that's a secular story that I think will persist through any marginal downturn, particularly if I'm right, that nominal GDP is unlikely to contract. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. We're in, you know, we're, we have a lot of economic momentum. So the housing story here is here's my my um, work on that that I think is pretty unique. So. Back in 2011, I created a correlation matrix of the 20 cities in the Case-Shiller House Price Index as a way my Bayesian prior at the time was to try and prove that uh, excess inventories in Vegas were no longer impacting prices in Phoenix. Or another way to think about this is recourse states versus non-recourse states. We're no longer, we no longer had this homogeneous just decline in house prices. That correlation was starting to fall apart. And it, it did prove that. And it, you, it allowed me to call a bottom in housing in 2011 when we were going through that debt ceiling debate um, and downgrade. I was actually quite bullish at the time. And uh, it was a pretty good call for me when I was Barclays equity strategist was, yeah, listen, housing is, is bottoming here. And that is going to set the stage for a big recovery in the economy and forget all the shenanigans in D.C., and uh, and that was a, a good call at the time. Well, fast forward to 2021, house price correlation of those 20 cities went to 0.97 in January and stayed there through October. So I've heard Fed officials, including Governor Waller, characterize the boom in house prices as primarily related to the pandemic and people's desires to work from home and have bigger houses and home offices. Um, that's bull. 
That is complete bunk. You don't have a 0.97 R squared against across 27 heterogeneous cities in this country uh, for any reason other than the Fed bought a third of the mortgage market and drove the spread of mortgage rates uh, to treasuries and the absolute level of mortgage rates to all-time lows. That's how you get a 0.97 R squared. And of course, once they stopped, the correlation collapsed. Now, as it turns out right now, correlation is surging because all 20 cities' house price charts are going like this. But in the latest month, in October, when mortgage rates peaked, house prices fell about half as much as they were expected to fall. They were supposed to fall 1.1%, and they only fell a half a percent. So I started looking through all 20 of those charts, and I found that in 12 of the cities, the growth rate of house prices is back to pre-pandemic levels. So the activity level, activity data for November and house price data is a little stale, right? But the activity level uh, data for November was still weak. The Fed has impaired both supply and demand, remember though. Um, and AHP survey's gone from 84 to 31. Yeah. Single family housing starts are down almost, you know, 35% or something. Um, but it could be this house price data is starting to get to a point where we've wrung out a lot of the excess. So I, I don't know. The builder stocks act like, yeah, we're making the bottom here and we're running into core demand from, you know, millennials forming households and that sort of thing. And we know that the level of household equity is its best level since 1959. So we're not really worried about the household sector getting crushed by the low, slowing house prices might be a little bit more worried about Blackstone and Starwood Lodge getting crushed yeah. by it. Although there's there's no real mechanism for them to get crushed per se. I, I think this is important to realize that a lot of what QE did during the period was what I would describe as malinvestment. It didn't create excessive debt necessarily, but a lot of people are going to have really subpar investments for a long time. I mean, if you put your money in BREIT, God bless you. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think you're going to wind up with a pretty lousy bond return mm, <laughs> over time. Mm, mm, um, mm, so, okay. yeah, anyway, that's that's where I come out on that. So housing is housing is really interesting here because, as I said, that correlation number is still going up because everything is falling or slowing. Yeah. But twelve of the cities are back down to levels that they were at pre-pandemic, and um, the process isn't complete. But who knows? It it, it could be complete sometime yeah. in the first half of the year. But what are what are the um, the new the supplies doing? The you know the new new construction and and the the building permits and that stuff. Well, that, I mean, therein lies the issue with monetary policy, right? Is it's it's a blunt instrument. Yeah, they wanted to weaken demand, but they also crushed supply. So yeah. they caused this excessive investment, and now they're causing um, they're impairing the supply side, and it was already an undersupplied housing market. Well, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the good news and the bad news, right? I mean, um, hmm. the, the good news is that you don't have a bunch of excessive investment. You're not going to have a whole bunch of builders go under because there's still there just wasn't excess yeah. supply. When yeah. you look at if you look at new home supply as a you know months, the number of months there are, yeah, it's up at the higher end of the range, maybe seven, eight months, but existing home sales, which is you know more than 10 times that number, 
it's still at three months. So there's just yeah. not that much right. housing stock out there. So we will run into a floor before too long, just in terms of quarter man, and hopefully, you know, a level of affordability for those forming households because household formation is strong right now. We have the biggest age cohort that we have in key household formation. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So good stuff there too. Um, let's turn to the Fed and the time we still have here. Sure. Does the Fed pivot? Do they blink here? What will it take? What are they going to do in the first couple of meetings? It's interesting. After the September meeting, when they had that very hawkish dot plot, they caused financial instability, right? We The next morning, I was in New York. I'd had a uh, dinner with clients at Spark Steakhouse it was pretty fun, old school on the night of the Fed meeting. And, you know, my call was, listen, this was super hawkish. And the first uh, shoe to drop on this is going to be dollar yen. Walked in the next morning and the Japanese had intervened to the tune of $21 billion of yen. That Sunday night, the pound flash crashed. It was not the trust government plan. That's who we it was. It was the Fed. And the, the reason here is that the dollar has become a petrocurrency and the two most vulnerable economies were Japan and the UK because of their oil imports and um, the fact that they don't run current account surpluses like Germany and China do and their currencies went in free fall. Um, on Monday morning, the mortgage market went into free fall. Mortgage REITs were down 10% that day, REITs that hold Fannie and Freddie paper, right? So they, the Fed almost broke the mortgage market. They went too far. And that's what forced them to slow the path, right? And, and slow the pace of, uh, of rate hikes. That's still a, a lingering potential source of risk is the fact that mortgage spreads are quite wide. Fixed income vol is quite high. Um, you know, they push too hard and they could be right back in the same position. But what's interesting relative to the DEEST meeting is they tried the same trick. Yeah. They tried to use the dot plot as a form of forward guidance to convince the markets uh, like the professor in Animal House. I'm serious, this is my job. I actually have that line on my Twitter profile. I like it so much, right? I'm not kidding, this is my job, right? But this time the market said, nah, we don't believe you, right? And and the way to, to think about that is, Look at two-year treasuries. They're at 433. The Fed just told you they're going to 510. And the market's like, nah, you're not. And 433 is only a tick above where they are now. So the market's right. basically saying, you're not getting to 510. But the stock market kind of has been selling ever since. What's that? The stock stocks have been selling ever since that December meeting. Well, the stock market much. is what I think the stock market is reacting to. Um and by the way, if you break the stock market up into three broad categories, um, cyclicals, defensives, and um, and tech and tech related, the tech and tech related is what is leading the market down. Over the last three months, really, since that September meeting, industrials are up 15%, materials are up 15%, energy's up 20%, builders are up 20%. So the market is agreeing with me that the Fed is kind of run its course and the manufacturing recession has run its uh, inventory recession has run its course, but they are starting to buy into the Fed higher for longer thesis. And that's what 
is a problem for tech valuations and will ultimately be a problem for defensive valuations too, because the defensives and tech are still expensive. Cyclicals are cheap. There's your opportunity, right? Because at eight or nine times earnings for tech and 11 times earnings for financials, if I'm right, and we don't have some big economic shoe to drop, that those that's where you'll make money in 2023. And then, by the way, they outperformed in 2022 as well. So I think the market is buying into the higher for longer. But by the way, we haven't talked about this. That is my call, actually, is that inflation, the path from nine to four, actually nine to three and a half now, uh, is very clear. And inflation will be at three and a half percent by mid-year because goods prices are coming down, because it's only a matter of time before the shelter, rent of shelter comes down. And even the um, services, less rent of shelter numbers, those have been zero the last two months. I think Powell's wrong about what causes inflation in those categories. Um, But that notwithstanding, those comparisons are 0.87 on average monthly changes for the first six months of the year. So that's gonna go down as well. And we're gonna find ourselves at three and a half percent at the middle of the year. But then because of the fiscal impulse I've talked about earlier, I expect it to stall. And so when I submit to Steve Leisman's CNBC survey, I have them stopping well below five to five and a quarter, but then potentially uh, hiking rates in September and December of next year. Small hikes, but I don't have any rate cuts penciled in. But I also believe, and this was a big contrarian view of mine a year ago, that the natural rate, if you will, the terminal rate that the economy could withstand was not two and a half percent like in 2018. There were two exogenous policy factors then, um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which caused a one-year adjustment in the housing market and the trade war, but that the true natural rate that the economy could withstand was, was more like four. And that's about where we are now. And I think the economy can operate just fine at this level. And I look at, you know, um, bank credit creation in small banks and see that being robust still, even with rates up at these levels. And the core demand I've talked about, capital spending, um, I think the economy can operate at this level. So I don't, I do not see this as being excessively tight. I heard a strategist on CNBC this morning saying, this, we're already too tight. I just, we were They've too tight for, yeah. we were too tight for <clears throat> um, the UK. We were too tight for the BOJ and, you know, the rest of the world. And, and we were raising too rapidly, but I don't, I do not think this level that we're at now is, is a level that will cause economic activity to crumble in the U S. Okay. Very interesting. So long cyclicals, short tech, anything else here? And defensives are going to are going to um, underperform. Defensive underperforming. Okay, They're r- ridiculously rich. Staples uh-huh. are rich. Utilities are rich. Um, That's also you know, pretty contrary. The inclination because... is to hide out in that stuff when markets under pressure. But yeah, um, and those usually those with tech, fine. Yeah. the stocks are just expensive. So there is that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Awesome. Barry Knapp. Thank you for all this. Maybe in closing, tell us we you have the Substack, um, Ironsides Macro and your Twitter handle, which is? At Barry Knapp. Oh, it's simple enough. Those are the main two areas where List, people can find you, right? Listed as Ironside's macro. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, um, there is 
my Substack and these uh, weekly reports that come out along with some interweek reports, they're, you know, 2,500 words or so with eight to 10 charts and tables. Yeah. And it was really, it's really institutional level um, yeah. research, but I've tried to make it a little more approachable for wealth advisors and sophisticated individual investors. Um, it's a thousand dollars a year or $89 a month for that product. It also comes with a weekly uh, podcast summary, summarizing the notes. So people like it. Even my brother says it helps them clarify some things. I've yeah. Nice. Um, and then for the, the institutional clients out there, if you have any institutional followers, hedge funds and the like, some. I have an affiliate relationship with macro risk advisors, Dean Kernitz, uh, equity derivative based in cash equity trading broker dealer, where I consult with them for clients that still want to pay for research the old fashioned way. And we create some specific products on that as well. And that's kind of fun because my origins in that business, really, I spent 15 years in equity derivatives at Lehman Brothers. And yeah. so that's sort of a, an area of expertise for me as well as thinking about how you implement these themes in ways, you know, interesting ways using uh, using derivatives. So um, very cool. So that's that's you know that's the business ironsidesmacro.substack.com to find me and um, out there on Twitter. I even got a blue check mark just for the heck of it. I nice. Elon can nice. use it. I have one on my personal, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> very cool, very cool, awesome, Barry. Well, thank you so much for rejoining us and giving us this very contrarian outlook for 2023. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.